Roman curse. I was in Rome when I was told I was to die. Well, it made me sick just to think about it. And I'd been having such a wonderful time that winter under those balmy Latin skies. I never even thought of leaving for the north in the land of the midnight sun. You might say I was hounded out of town, but better let me give you a few of the details. I'd eaten Brussels sprouts for lunch the previous afternoon. Now this is a dish I just detest. To my mind, it is no more than a foul-smelling, thick bit of greenery which no sauce can really elevate. I know it must be related to the thistle family of plants. But never mind, no more of the Nouvelle cuisine for now. She was an ordinary seigneur of the working class of that country. Her husband would see me walking in the gardens and greet me with native affection. A peasant, really. I'm speaking of the woman who told me I was to die. I was living in a sparsely furnished little room in an ever-so-ordinary little view overlooking the Eternal City. It was there she graced me with that absolutely pedestrian augury. It's really a very silly thing to say to another person. And a shot from the blue. The sooner the better, she said. Can you imagine that? I mean, really, what an incredible thing to say. I'm afraid I was forced to let her go, even though I did need her to launder the linen, wipe up the horrible red dust which blew in my window, and empty the shell ashtray. Little things, but so important to our sense of well-being. She began, innocently enough, by warning me that all my associates would betray me, and I would soon find myself alone in a queer land, homeless and heartbroken. Ah. Oh. Maybe she was just another innocent psychic, but I don't care. She couldn't have known anything about my past. I'm sure none of that got into the Italian papers. Not that they wouldn't print it if they could. They'll print anything. Don't you remember the pictures of that actress's severed head lying by the side of the highway? They can be so tasteless, these journalists. Anyway, I took her willingness to talk as a sign of native friendliness. But it's so hard to tell with foreigners. This is why I talked to her in the first place. The old bag, I said to myself, needs a good dry cleaning. Like many women of her race. Like women of most races. Not all women, really. She emitted an odor. I bid her good day and was about to leave for the palace when, taking my hand, she cast a soulful gaze upon me. I said nothing, being dumbfounded in wonderment. She said, Why are you here, Mr. Desmond? Why have you come to our city? Signor Desmond, what do you want from us? What have we done to harm you? Why do you not return to your homeland? I turned sympathetic and muttered something about the climate, the pines, the ruins and fountains and steppes. The art. Perhaps I should have gone to Florence or Verona. I'm afraid she, like most simple people, the poor and downtrodden, those who labor with their hands to earn their daily bread, did not understand the power of art. She tightened her grip and said, You will die soon, Mr. Desmond. The sooner the better. A smell of fermenting milk rose up from her every crack and crevice. She made her eyes twinkle in the morning sunlight. It was something most extraordinary.
Quite a neat little trick, almost cinematic in its magical effect. I politely freed my hand and crossed to open a window. She couldn't have been part of a hit squad. That was just too far-fetched. And she couldn't possibly have heard of me in connection with what happened stateside. I was never mentioned anywhere as being anything more than a material witness. A whiff of eucalyptus wafted in on the breeze. I told her right then and there that her services would no longer be required. By the way, my name is not Mr. Desmond, but Desmond Farker, and that is my given name. I just hate people who make them up as they go along. And let me say right here and now that I have nothing but nothing to do with the world of work. I have just enough money to get along, and that is that. It's a trust. I've never had to worry about the simple fact of survival the way so many do today. Call me lucky, but that is who I am. I told her right then and there that her services would no longer be required. She shrugged her shoulders and shuffled out of the room. She left me quite alone and somewhat the sadder for the experience. Not that I cared. Two weeks later, I left that holy city to continue my travels. I took a taxi to the railroad station, which was crowded with people leaving town. The train ride north was very exciting. We went up the west coast where the souls of the poets themselves dwell in the mists off the sea. So many painters have done such lovely watercolors of these shores. We rolled on through the night. Empty rail yards in the arc light, a slim volume of my favorite poetry. I had a comfortable little couchette. I feel that travel makes one so much more fit for ordinary life. I believe our first stop was Dijon, a well-situated city in France famous for its mustard and its hams. I didn't rest there. I sat finishing my breakfast on a siding, and then we continued. Twelve hours later, I was in Bremen town, that city of musicians. I took a streetcar to Bremerhaven, where I found a room in a picturesque, though seedy old flophouse. The sort of place where a sailor sleeps it off. In a matter of days, I found my captain, and within a week I boarded the steamer bound for Hong Kong by way of the Cape of Good Hope. That's just how easy it is, though it happens so much faster on paper. And bad cess to her, I thought, as I stood at last on the gangplank, about that woman who had told me that horrible thing.'